attracted great people to the organization and motivated them to stay. Encouragementology is all about connect, understand, and encourage. And in order to understand, you have to be open and ready to listen. To offer empathetic statements of support. I understand what you're saying. I hear you. Sometimes it's just a matter of people being heard. It doesn't mean that you have to agree with them, but you're willing to listen. Remember I said, you only know what you know. Always be willing to question that because you're evolving and growing and becoming someone new every day. Don't rely on information to come to you. Seek out knowledge. Our best teachers are right around us. If you want to share encouragementology with a friend who needs to know they're not alone in this journey of self-discovery, you can visit encouragementology.com or anywhere you stream your content to receive this episode and all others. Follow us on Facebook for additional encouragement throughout the week. So I challenge you, test your solution from every angle to see how others might be impacted. Embrace the positives and learn from the negatives to course correct any unintended circumstances. I know you can do it. Thank you for listening to Encouragementology with Kendall Boyson, where we find positive ways to handle some of life's challenges. Somewhere through until the path was clear. That's when I found you. How I wound up here. All I needed was a rock and I can lean on. All you needed was something. Oh, I tell KBO 90.7. Dasha T said that. Good morning and welcome to Film at 11 here on your community radio, KBOO Portland. This week, Matthew of KBOO's Kremlin Time discusses one of the early horror portmanteau or anthology films, Dead of Night, with Sir Michael Redgrave. And speaking of portmanteau films, we'll now air a discussion I had with Stephen Hood about Wes Anderson's recent anthology film, The Paris Dispatch. But first, Jeff Godsell looks back at an early David Lynch film. Hollywood is full of stories of movies getting made from a hodgepodge of contributors, finally resulting in the finished product. As I've said before, it's a miracle that so many good movies get made at all, considering the random accidents that are involved. Not to say that there aren't plenty of train wrecks, in my recent look back at 1980, I found plenty. Take Popeye, for example. Produced by Robert Evans for Paramount and Disney, directed by Robert Altman from a screenplay by Jules Pfeiffer, with derisable songs by Harry Nielsen, and starring Robin Williams and Shelley Duvall as Popeye and olive oil and exaggerated costumes and a set designed to simulate the look of the cartoons, well, that's a lot of influences. And as I was watching it, I began to wonder, did anybody really think this was a good idea? But then in the same year, on the opposite end of the spectrum, is The Elephant Man. Well, sir, I don't quite 
I don't quite understand. Why did you allow that sort of people in there? Why? Because he enjoys it and I think it's very good for him. Yes, but sir, you saw the expression on their faces. They didn't hide their disgust. They don't care anything about John. They only want to impress their friends. I think you're being rather harsh on them, don't you, Mrs. Morrison? I beg your pardon, sir. You yourself hardly showed much loving kindness when you first arrived, did you? I bathed him. I fed him and I cleaned up after him, didn't I? And I see that my nurses do the same. Yes. And if loving kindness can be called care and practical concern, then I did show him loving kindness and I am not ashamed to admit it. I didn't mean it exactly that way, Mrs. Mothersley. Now, please believe me. Now, of course I appreciate your concern. I appreciate everything that you've done for Mr. May. Thank you. But I am the physician in charge and I, I must do what I think is best for him. Please, now, I'm also very late. If you ask my opinion, he's only being stared at all over again. Producer Jonathan Sanger was given a screenplay by his babysitter. Apparently a, it was written by a friend or a boyfriend. Sanger had only produced one film at the time and was working with Mel Brooks as an assistant director on films like High Anxiety. Sanger was surprised to find just how good the script by Christopher DeVore and Eric Bergen actually was. So he showed it to Mel Brooks, who was just starting his Brooks Films production company. He liked the script, too. DeVore and Bergen's screenplay was a biographical drama about Joseph Merrick, named John in the film, the severely deformed man in Victorian London who was discovered in a freak show and aided by a Dr. Frederick Trevis. Merrick was named the Elephant Man by the cruel and sadistic freak show owner who controlled Merrick's life. There had already been a play written about Merrick, performed in London's West End by David Bowie, no less. It had also had an off-Broadway run. But the screenplay was based not on the stage plays, but rather on Frederick Trevis's book, the Elephant Man and Other Reminiscences from 1923 and The Elephant Man, A Study in Human Dignity from 1971 by Ashley Montague. After Brooks decided to finance the film, the unlikely road to its completion continued when Brooks's personal assistant, Stuart Cornfield, suggested to Sanger, a young director named David Lynch, at that time, Lynch's only feature film had been Eraserhead, not exactly the most likely of calling cards to take on a serious major mainstream film. But Sanger met with Lynch, who was attempting to get his project, Ronnie Rocket, off the ground, but it never did. But Sanger liked Lynch's ideas, and Lynch liked Sanger. Now they had to sell Lynch to Brooks. Now, Mel Brooks had never seen Eraserhead, so a screening was arranged. And the whole thing might have come to a halt right there. But Brooks loved the film. He saw the potential in Lynch as the director and was to enthusiastically support him from then on. Of course, we now know how The Elephant Man fits into the cinematic world of David Lynch. But for everyone involved at the time... It was the first time they had encountered this unique artist. I can't help wondering what it must have been like for the predominantly English cast and crew to meet this young director with a dedicated vision, prone to saying things like, 
golly and really neat. Lynch was involved with the musical direction for the film and the sound design as well. He even designed the original makeup for Merrick, but that was ultimately too impractical. When it was discovered that it just wouldn't work, in another one of those lucky accidents that these kinds of movies seem to always have, Christopher Tucker became available, and his incredible makeup, worn by John Hurt, was based on direct casts of John Merrick's body, kept in the Royal London Hospital's private museum, and kindly and amazingly made available to Tucker by the museum's director. Tucker's makeup for the deformed Merrick was so stunning that it compelled makeup artists to insist that the Academy create an Oscar category for makeup, something that had not then existed. They finally agreed, and the category was created for the following year, unfortunately, when the Elephant Man no longer qualified. The decision to shoot the film in black and white was partially so as not to make Merrick's appearance look too lurid, too monstrous, but it really just adds immeasurably to Freddie Francis's stunning cinematography, depicting so much of the squalor of the alleyways and sweatshops of Victorian London in the late 1800s. The only criticism that the Elephant Man has really gotten, including one in an early review from Roger Ebert, is that it is, quote, unashamedly sentimental, unquote. Personally, I would substitute unflinchingly compassionate, which is hardly a criticism. The film also fits quite nicely into Lynch's other depictions of goodness and evil in films like Blue Velvet and Mulholland Drive. The truth is, the relationship between Merrick and Dr. Travis, as his benefactor, could easily have become mawkish and cliched, but the Elephant Man really nicely avoids all of that. And it's helped immeasurably by the beautifully understated performance by Anthony Hopkins. Dr. Travis' interest in Merrick is professional, to be sure, but the depth of his compassion is revealed by that single teardrop that falls from his eye when he sees the deformed figure in front of him for the first time. A figure that we, the audience, would not see until sometime later in the film. That miraculous shot, by the way, caught by Francis and his camera, was a first and only take. Under all that makeup, of course, was John Hurt, whose performance is a kind of miracle in itself. After hours in the makeup chair every day, his difficult speech had to be audible enough to be understood, while his movements were tortuous and yet sometimes even balletic. One could see the character of John Merrick, the Elephant Man, as one who brought out the true character of all of those who met him, whether it was the cruelty of his captor and those who mocked and exploited him, or the inherent decency of others, such as Trevis and his wife, and Mrs. Mother said of the, the stern but matronly head nurse of the hospital, so well played by Wendy Hiller. And then there is John Gielgud, 
who brings all of his stature and grace as an actor to the role of Francis Cargom, the head of the hospital, who must temper his logic and his common sense with his compassion in allowing Merrick to stay at the hospital. The Elephant Man was nominated for eight Academy Awards, the same as Raging Bull that year, but, alas, came away with none. It was duly recognized with awards all over the world, however, and in Japan it was the second highest grossing film of 1980, second only to The Empire Strikes Back. This is Jeff Godsell for Essentials of Cinema, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Jeff. And don't forget to drop into Jeff's website, Essentials of Cinema, for more recommendations. Next up, here's Matthew with some insights into the anthology film Dead of Night and its three directors. From 1945 comes this portmanteau film. It's a collection of shorter films uh, presented in one feature film. At that same time, in the mid-40s, there was movies, a couple of movies like that called uh, there was Flesh and Fantasy, another one called O. Henry's uh, Full House. And we've had many other films like that. Uh, recently, the Coen Brothers, they did the, the Ballad of Lester Scruggs. And also there was like uh, the Paris Dispatch from a, a year or two ago, which we're actually going to talk about later. But uh, Dead of Night from 1945 was produced by Ealing Studios. And it isn't really a horror movie. It's more in the tradition of the classic English Ghost story. Let's play another game. Yes, hide and seek. Who's to hide? I'll hide. I'll hide. Yes, it's the great hide. The great hide. The great hide. Now, you had some really good ghost stories that came out in the 1940s, particularly The Uninvited with uh, Ray Milland and Gail Patrick. And there was also, uh, you know, The Ghost and Mrs. Muir with Gene Tierney and um, Rex Harrison special effects and dream sequences and stuff. Audiences really like movies about ghosts and stuff because of, you know, World War and everything and the death and destruction that's gone on there. Another movie that was also out is Hitchcock's Spellbound. It's a movie where psychologic treatment actually helps and, and unravels the problem in the patient's mind. Whereas Dead of Night is like the totally opposite of that. Still there. So it isn't a dream this time. I beg your pardon? Yes, it isn't a dream this time. I must be going out of my mind. You see, everybody in this room is part of my dream. Everybody. Good Lord, really? Then he stopped. You're kidding. Not all of us. Unlike other movies, it doesn't really have a sort of auteur uh, touch to it. Of Ealing Studios were very egalitarian, very socialist in their setup. Michael Balkan, the head of the studio, had socialist leanings. And so a lot of things were decided by groups and stuff uh, with Malcolm's direction. Though actually, when you read about the studio, a lot of the real decisions were made across the street and down the block at a pub that's nearby. And this is probably where the different directors from this movie, um, Alberto Cavalcante, uh, Charles Crichton, uh, Basil Deardum, and um, Robert Hammer, sort of worked out how to do this movie. It's not just a portmanteau film with a bunch of different stories. The overall threading narrative 
is integrated within the stories. And so it seems more like a feature film, but with five little parts to it. Each of these stories, as I said, are a ghost story where the fabric of reality kind of comes apart and these people are kind of sucked into it. They go through a door or they open a window or they look into a mirror. In one of these stories, a man's been given a new mirror by his wife and here we see him, you know, preparing to like tie his tie and getting dressed in the morning. We see his bedroom and he goes to the mirror and we have the shot where he walks up to the mirror with his back to the camera. Then we cut to a reverse shot where we see him standing, looking at the me at his reflection in the mirror, which is off to the left of the camera. As he's tying his tie, he suddenly stalks and there's something in the mirror that has really startled him. And so we know that the next cut is going to be of what he's seeing. And now we're looking at the mirror from his point of view. And here's his reflection in the mirror. But behind him is a different room. Very basic filmmaking. But you see how powerful the montage of images in. We see the man tying his tie. Something disturbs him in the room, in the mirror. And then we see what disturbs him in the mirror. All nice basic filmmaking that really uh, brings us in to this very eerie and weird story. Where the man's wife, who uh, bought him the mirror in the first place, she doesn't see the other room in the mirror. That is, not until the point where her husband is trying to strangle her. Mr. Rothman, tell me about it. That's why I came back. It belonged to a man who was crippled who accused his wife just as you're now accusing me. And then she sees the other room in the mirror as he's... <laughs> so I'm talking about Dead of Night from 1945. It has four directors, and so it seems like they really worked together. None was trying to outdo the other, like, I'll make my segment better than the others. But no, they all kind of uh, balanced out the production. They were just beginning on their careers, so they were young and ambitious and stuff. They were all working on other projects at the same time, and so it was like, what they could get together and arrange this and it would be done and somebody else would direct that and then someone would step up to do this section and then somebody else was in charge of the whole sort of framing story and so they all neatly work together. So the movie opens with this very ordinary man, Walter Craig, played by a familiar actor for British audiences, Merwin Jones. And he had appeared in a movie a couple of months before that uh, called The High House or something. And it was about a group of people who find themselves at this inn. You know, it's kind of like Geoffrey Chaucer's uh, Canterbury Tales, where they find themselves together and they begin to find that there's something that connects them all. And so this movie opens in a similar way which kind of sets up to audiences that, oh, this is going to be another movie, kind of like Chaucer, and people will talk and everything. But no, this movie sort of takes a different turn. When the uh, Walter Craig, an architect, invited out to this country home to uh, start planning some uh, uh, renovations and uh, repairs. Know this part of the world at all? No. I've never been here before. He's uneasy as he comes in and, and he starts realizing that these, he recognizes these people and he's been here before. And this whole amount of uh, deja vu and how uneasy it makes him. And everybody sort of jumps up and logically tries to reassure him. And in this movie, unlike the Hitchcock film where logic and reason can unravel the problem, in this, the more rational and reasonable people talk, it seems to make everything a little bit worse. 
Everybody in this room is part of my dream. Everybody. Gosh. Good Lord, really? Very extraordinary. You're kidding. Not all of them. I can only tell you that when I came into this room, I recognized you all instantly. Having seen all our photographs in the newspapers, I take it up to their father. <laughs> of course, you may have seen me on the sports page. Motor racing's my life. And so this leads people to helpfully tell them a story from their own lives of some eerie thing that happened to them and that's of course to set them at ease but it just makes things more bad, eerie uh, we have the the girl who was at a christmas party and they were playing hide and seek and she goes up into this house that she's unfamiliar with and when she goes into a room she finds a little boy who's crying and she like comforts him and this is a ghost story kind of related to a, cla a very famous victorian murder uh, we have the race car driver who's recovering from an injury and he has this reoccurring dream where he looks out the window and there's a hearse and the driver turns to him and says That's room for one inside, and then there's the woman with the mirror probably the most famous segment uh, features michael redgrave as this ventriloquist who's losing his mind and he believes that the dummy has its own personality but you you're telling the truth you will tell them it wasn't my fault what sort of dummy do you think I am? You shot him, didn't you? Yes, but that was in self-defense. He was trying to rob me. Tell that to the judge. Poor Sylvester. Such a charming fellow. They tell me he's recovering. Be out of hospital soon. Well, what's that to you? Well, looks like I'll be needing a new partner. Oh, you don't mean that. You're joking. Like hell I am. I've my career to think of. You wouldn't run out on me now. I believe it. You wouldn't do that to me. Oh, wouldn't I? Wouldn't I? Redgrave would uh, later acknowledge that th this was one of his finest performances. Now, as eerie and unsettling this uh, ventriloquist sequence is, it leads us into the uh, big climactic nightmarish ending of the story as the man is starting to realize that he's trapped in a dream and all these people are giving like flashbacks within a dream that's turning into a nightmare. I'm talking about the movie Dead of Night from 1945, an anthology horror movie slash ghost story from Ealing Studios who were kind of looking around for what kind of movies to do as the World War II was sort of winding down. It uh, was released in the United States, but it had a couple of its sequences cut out of them sort of for censorship reasons. Uh, British audiences were a little more mature, not as prudish as American audiences about uh, sexual relations. And so especially a sequence where these two men are in love with the same woman and one of them dies and then he comes back as a ghost to haunt his friend during the honeymoon. Well, you know, that's sort of, that was considered a lot too racy back there in mid-40s America. It's available on a disc from Kino Lober. It's got a nice commentary track by uh, Tim Lucas. It brings out a lot of information. And there's an accompanying uh, sort of essay movie with different critics uh, remembering uh, Dead of Night. In fact, you can find that documentary on uh, uh, YouTube, Remembering Dead of Night. But uh, I felt that the picture quality was a little poor within some spots where the, it was a little too washed out and maybe a white line or two streaking the picture. But overall, still a very effective movie. The thinking man's horror movie for those who look down their nose at horror movies. Just room for one more inside, sir. <laughs> Thanks again, Matthew. And you are listening to Film at 11 
here on Community Radio, KBOO Portland. And finally, we're presenting an encore of our talk with Stephen Hood about a film certainly influenced by the narrative structure of Dead of Night, and that's Wes Anderson's 2021 production, The Paris Dispatch. It began as a holiday. Eager to escape a bright future on the Great Plains, Arthur Howitzer Jr. transformed the series of travelogue columns into the French Dispatch, a factual weekly report on the subjects of world politics, the arts, high and low, and diverse stories of human interest. You don't think it's almost too seedy this time? No, I don't. Decent people. Supposed to be charming. He assembled a team of the best expatriate journalists of his time. Berenson, Sazerac, Kremens, Roebuck Wright. These were his people. Just try to make it sound like you wrote it that way on purpose. The French Dispatch from Searchlight and Walt Disney Pictures is directed by Wes Anderson and written by him and a few others and shares many of the performers from the Bond films. Leia Seydoux, Christoph Waltz, Jeffrey Wright. In addition to Bill Murray, Owen Wilson, Willem Dafoe, Edward Norton, Francis McDormand, Benicio Del Toro, Angelica Houston, Lois Smith, Fisher Stevens, Griffin Dunn, Jason Schwartzman, Sorsa Ronan, Henry Winkler, Bob Balaban, and Mathieu Almaric, a mixture of old hands and newcomers. It's a love letter to journalists set in an outpost of an American newspaper in a fictional 20th century French city that brings to life a collection of stories published in the French Dispatch magazine. Here, Anderson invents the English-language supplement to a Midwestern newspaper staffed with analogs to famous New Yorker writers such as Genet, the pen name for Janet Flanner, Mavis Gallant, James Baldwin, and others, operating out of the comically named town of Ennui-sur-Blasé, and the film offers an anthology of short tales culled from this fake magazine's archive, covering various issues such as worker-student strikes and much more, presented visually in Anderson's regulation precision and whimsy. Now I'm going to be joined by Stephen Hunt. We together saw the French Dispatch. What were you thinking before you went in to see it? What were your and what did you anticipate? I always look forward to Wes Anderson films because I feel like each movie builds on his ambitions and he's able to try new things. Mm. Um, I'd heard in interviews before that he always tries to do something new and interesting, and every critic tells him that it just looks very Wes Anderson-y and that he's not coming very much out of his shell. But I feel with this movie, it was really elaborate and over the top in um, how he framed some of the scenes. Uh, like we had uh, discussed after the movie, the, the film is based on, uh, more, more inspired by The New Yorker. And many of the shot compositions look like New Yorker covers. Good point. Uh, and it's kind of, we get to see what isn't captured by the New Yorker covers in some of his uh, original setups for scenes where people come in and out of a scene. Um, yeah, and, and in fact, they're not, there are four stories in the movie. And in fact, they're not really presented as the stories that we would be reading in the magazine, but how those stories came about. So we're looking behind the, or beyond the page to see how did these writers do their job? Yeah, and Wes Anderson does a very unique film trick in letting us know when we're inside of the magazine and when we're outside of the magazine, mm -hmm. yeah. where when we are currently in the story that is posted in this fictional magazine that we're uh, being uh, shown how was how, how was made, uh, it switches to black and white, very much to tell us that 
the story we're currently seeing is in the black and white of the page. That's and when right. we come back out into color, we see you know, the vibrant, colorful world of what surrounds this black and white world that these people in the French dispatch building try so hard to make every month. Yeah, and it's not exactly photojournalism or photorealism. The, many of the characters are blends of fabled New Yorker writers from the uh, early 50s through the late 60s, early 70s, and they're composite figures, but recognizable. For example, you can't not know that Timothy Wright is playing James Baldwin. And uh, in fact, I think his section is probably the one that I like the best. And yet also at the same time had the most Wes Anderson-y storyline. It had the little genius kid who is smarter than everybody else. And it had kind of a chase story or is reminiscent of Anderson movies like the one on the, about the kids on the island. And also it being broken up into four little stories somehow seemed to me, to make the tweeness that people don't like about Anderson somewhat mitigated. But also it gives you a real breadth of characters that you don't even get in regular motion pictures. Yeah, I, th I think that's a, a fair analysis. I have noticed that some of Anderson's films can get a little oppressive in their world building where you kind of get bored of the wonder that he's built. And you're right, by splitting yeah. this up into 20 minute, sometimes 30 minute and some of the longer sections of vignettes, you get to see a more dynamic range of his abilities, where he doesn't have to say, you know, in Fantastic Mr. Fox, everything has to fit in this stop motion world. He can have elements of stop motion in this film. He can have elements of animation. He can have uh, elements of uh, film noir, even yeah, without right. ever feeling like it pulls away from anything mm -hmm. the story has to provide. Right. You know, and also this is the first of his movies in a long time that I wanted to freeze the film as I was watching it so I could really scrutinize the spines of books and the faces of various people. He does tap into this cultural love of the New Yorker, not always justified, but he definitely is approaching the New Yorker at the peak of its existence when it had when William Sean was the editor and he paid people really well and gave them a lot of latitude to spend a lot of time researching their stories, sometimes taking up to as much as a year or more to write things. And then of that variety of voices that he had, it's hard to imagine the magazine today that would have a, a, a writer like uh, Pauline Kale in the same issue as as a John McPhee. I think I've realized that with the amount of access to information we have, I think oh. that there will be some videos that come out that break down what exactly Wes Anderson was referencing here, which might even cause a new resurgence of fandom for the New Yorker. Yes, so it's the bringing of culture to a, in this case, a mythical Kansas newspaper that the French Dispatch is its a travel supplement. Again, thanks for listening to Community Radio. KBOO Portland. Film at 11 will be back next Friday, so until then, keep watching your screens. And this is KBOO Portland.